If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. 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 Let me tell Greetings Grapple fans, it's time once again for two different generations of wrestling fans to discuss the subject matter for an extended period of time, focusing on a specific minutia or topic of that industry with a combination of passion, intensity and questionable levels of actual knowledge. Yes, it's Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host Lorcan Mullen and with me as always is the Akam to my Razor. The Warlord to my Barbarian, the Blaster McMassive to my Max Smashmaster, Mr. Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing, mate? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Um, as always, Lorcan, you've given me a big introduction, and big is certainly the theme of uh, this particular cast, as the kid- kids are calling them these days. No, no one's doing that. I, I was trying to like hyphenate, like hyphenate, abbreviate podcast. I, oh, I just... okay. I was worried that you were talking about like a group of people, like a cast, as if it was the terrible um, social parameters that many countries have, such as India. Oh dear. Led to great internal strife over the years. Oh dear. <laughs> Th- this may be the most out of touch I've ever looked. <laughs> But yes, what Simon is talking about is that we're talking about a specific strata of wrestling that was um, maybe more prevalent in the glory golden era of wrestling of the 80s. And now, in a certain way, is making arguably a bit of a comeback, at least with one uh, particular figurehead of this group of wrestlers, this strata of wrestlers. And they are known as, we're going to use the loose definition of the monster wrestlers. By that, I guess we mean... Well, this is where it will be an interesting uh, stage one of the the conversation. Are there certain requirements that you think are needed, Simon, for you to consider a wrestler to be a monster wrestler? Um, Like, who would you say is the prototypical monster wrestler, if you were to ask? If someone would say, your, your, your dictionary of wrestling terms, monster, who would you use as an image next to that? Um, I would say... The most stereotypical, like, big, monstery wrestler, and the one that transcends the genre, if I am to use such a term, is Andre the Giant. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just look at him. Stands out, like, in terms of height, in terms of weight, in terms of build. He's just bigger than the normal. And normal is pretty big. That That's what you have to bear in mind when you're looking at monsters, they make men who would athletically trounce the average man and obliterate us, uh, quite frankly, in, in like any form of like uh, physical combat. They make those guys look like Joe Bloggs. It, it, it's really weird. And 
Andre the Giant is the guy who just encapsulates that most perfectly. Okay, so your understanding of a monster is that there would maybe be a height and weight uh, advantage over like yes, like like uh, what would you say is an appropriate height? It's like it's like a, a fairground attraction. There's only so tall. If you are not this tall, you cannot be a monster. So can you think of like a height limitation that you might place? That's an era specific answer because. I think wrestlers on average now are shorter than they would have been 20 to 30 years ago. Probably even um, more recent than that. Yeah, I'm given a conservative time frame there. But um, basically, significantly taller than the average is how I would term it. It's a very like wishy-washy, non-committal answer, but mm. it's the most accurate one because because it's an average, it fluctuates so much. Here's what I would ask you though, Simon, because like, uh, say, say, I think most people say a monster like an above average height would be something like six foot four, maybe or higher. But Brock Lesnar, I believe, is um, a mere quote unquote six foot three, I believe. But what he does hold is width and bulk, girth, and yes, girth, very much so. He's as wide as he is tall. So I guess it's it's again a physical prowess. But then we could go even further. Mm. Here's two maybe more, um, arguably, some would say they are, some would say they aren't. When he was in ECW, Rhino was very much presented as a monster wrestler, but I think he himself is maybe 5 foot 11, 6 foot tall, or so. I mean, in the world of ECW, that was less of an issue, because there weren't as many tall wrestlers. But what Rhino had again is he had a thickness he had a width to him that um to the point that it's almost comical at times i think he's a man blessed with unfortunately short arms compared to the rest of his body it's a little (laughs) bit disproportionate and even to a greater degree could the argument be made that one of the greatest monster wrestlers in ecw's era was taz both in his Tasmaniac wild animal character and his shoot-style UFC-inspired Taz. Because what that Taz character had in ECW was an air of invulnerability. Mm. That he couldn't really get badly hurt. He had that aura. And he was presented as basically the most dangerous man on the planet. And that he could take out anyone, and they pitched him against a few larger characters. A UFC fighter who was like six foot six. They had him work a match with Taz, and had Taz win that match. Um, I think his name was Paul Varlines or something like that. Now, would you mm. count Taz as a potential monster wrestler, or at the very least, a subgenre of the monster wrestler type? Well. That's an interesting the way obviously you've termed how Taz, especially as the shoot fighter, was portrayed. Um, WWE had its own version, uh, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Ken Shamrock, a big hoss of a human being, but not portrayed more not really portrayed as a monster, Ken Shamrock, more portrayed as like an unstoppable machine. It's a fine line. And I guess um Brock sort of straddles, Brock sort of hops between the two. It's a very fluid spectrum. 
Yeah, Brock is like the super athlete in that yeah. he has all of the grace of a cruiserweight or, or someone like that, but the size of a super heavyweight. Yeah. And that's what made him so scary, the fact that he could be both a technical wrestler, he could wrestle a, a technical guy like Chris Benoit or Kurt Angle, but he could also just throw around The Undertaker like he was a little, like he was a weight of 150 pounds. I think for, like, as a monster being a monster, it's a big dude who doesn't even need to use conventional wrestling moves. That's what truly defines a monster. But then again, again, that's fluid. Mm. Like, because you could argue that, um, I count him as, I count him as, like, a a monster. The Undertaker himself, um, especially towards the uh, second half of his career, great wrestler uh you know in terms of the moves he was using but he always had that monster due to his height his, his character in general um and his weight i mean and, and his athleticism he had a monster aura to him so is um, the key invulnerability ahead of height and girth yes and the, the invulnerability because for example chris hero cassius ono was about the same height as lars sullivan yeah, when the two wrestled more quite recently at time of recording in NXT, Lars Sullivan was presented as the monster, the invulnerable figure, whereas Chris Hero was the technical wrestler, the the surprisingly agile for a man his size. Yeah, wrestler who who wrestles in a an inconveniently too tight basketball top. Be that as it may, <laughs> um, I think invulnerability to an extent. But it's sort of got something piggybacks onto it. I think a monster in itself can't just be a big dude that's presented as invulnerable. There's actually got to be some sign, some deep character behind it. Because if you look at... Because monsters are something that people want to produce. People want to have a big guy, like... Because it's a, it's a... Monsters are something every like wrestling promoter wants to produce. They want a big guy because a big guy draws attention. A big guy can do things that small men can't. You know, test of strength challenges like you know the conventional battle royal, just scatter people about. Those are all compelling things. But for every monster that's been created successfully, um, you look at Kane's debut. You look at Big Show's debut in the WWE. You look at Undertaker's debut at Survivor Series. There have been people, uh, monsters, who have burst onto the scene and just, due to their character not connecting, just failed. Despite the fact, physically at least, they met the requirements and exceeded them in some cases. You've got your great Carly, your Vladimir Kozlovs, for example. It's interesting that you're using... You said something about them needing more depth of character. Um, Maybe they do in a more modern context, because I would argue that there was no depth to the Kamala character, for example. It was a very shallow uh, vision of a person of a- from Africa, in all honesty. There was but no they depth masked to that Kamala. Well. They masked that well with obviously his managers and his gimmick sort of masked the lack of character. Mm. Well, I guess he came from that time when there were attractions. It wasn't a weekly soap opera on TV which needed ups and downs, interactions with the majority of people on the roster, 
Kamala could be in his own little special attraction match against an Andre the Giant or against an Undertaker. Yes. Or against um, Jerry Lawler if he's in Memphis for two months. That's the thing with the monster character. There was a formula to them that would work in the Territories era for your King Kong Bundys, for your Kamalas, for your um, Abdullah the Butchers even. They come yeah. in, they attack, they brutalize, they go after the main guy. The main guy vanquishes them, then they go to the next territory and they do it all over again. Now, in this modern era, where a wrestler pretty much their main goal in, in the Western Hemisphere is to appear in the WWE and to hopefully have a career there that lasts years upon years upon years, you can't do that. That was the problem with, say, Rusev, for example. Again, I don't know if you would count him as a monster or just... Um, I don't know if monster requires an almost an animalistic lack of humanity to them. Whereas Rusev was a very... He was just a very tough competitor. I guess it's like uh, the um, the obvious example in the outside of the wrestling world is the Ivan Drago character or the Club of Lang character from the Rocky sequels compared to an Apollo Creed character. But Rusev and um, Ivan Drago, they weren't animalistic. They were just sadistic. They knew what they were doing. They just enjoyed it. But this is my point with Rusev, that he then... They build him up for a year, pretty much. He falls to John Cena. Then he loses in the rematches. And then they don't know where to go with him. Then he gets involved in love triangles, as we spoke in the previous episode about wrestling and romance. Love squares in the end. Love squares. Then he's in a faction. And then he's the guy that can lose to the main baby faces more to help him be built, help them be built up. And then suddenly he's just a part of the mid card and he needs to come up with something new like Rusev Day. That's what happened to Rusev. That's what happened to Ryback. That's what happened to the great Carly. That they exist for this short-term storyline when the goal for them, and you would assume for the WWE, is to try and get long-term benefit out of them. But with the with the great Carly, they rode him. They they cycled him through the Undertaker. They cycled him through Batista. Then they cycled him through John Cena, and after that, he really became um, an amusement. A uh, guy that could, the guy that gets eliminated by Beth Phoenix or or what have you, the dancing Indian guy. Yeah, the guy that's there to show how strong another guy is. The guy that's there for Cesaro to get into the giant swing. Yeah. And so, whereas, like I say, back in the day, the great Carly would have then gone to the Carolinas, or he would have gone to Texas to feud with the Von Erichs, or he would have gone to California, or he would have gone to Portland, or he would have gone to uh, Stampede. Or he'd gone to Japan and wrestled Antonio Inoki. Mm. So that's that's the that's the problem I guess you have now is that at a time where we need more character depth, and that's what I think will bring us on to the most recent inheritor of the top monster figurehead in the promotion, and the guy that he essentially usurped for the title over a number of uh, matches that they had on TV in the past year or so. I'm of course talking of Braun Strowman. And the big show. So Braun Strowman, it's fair to say, right now is is the hottest act in wrestling. And has been, for the most part, for the best part of a year now. With um, ever I guess really the moment was when he first said, I'm not finished with you with Roman Reigns. <laughs> then he became 
another he, he went up another level and he became a cult favorite with the fans as well or, or at least a certain section of the fans that was the goal i think that there were like he was well on the way but that was the goal every episode of raw it seems like the first thing that they have on the drawing board at the time of recording which is february of 2018 is what can we do with braun this week that seems to be the priority with them now more so than roman reigns more so with anyone else on the roster. The first thing they want to do is come up with a good idea for Braun Strowman and then everyone else can follow. One of the most brilliant recent examples of that being that he interrupted an Elias sing-song with a stand-up bass that he played as if it were a guitar and and almost immediately snapped the strings and revealed to have quite a decent singing voice, it must be said. He's got, he's got, he's got... Strings to his bow. Unsurprisingly, he's got a good baritone. Yeah, he's. It's it's an interesting thing because I think Vince enjoys writing for Braun because it's a throwback to just the wacky cartoonish levels of destruction. It's akin to an Attitude Era episode of Raw, uh, like Austin smashing something up with a, a digger, a cement mixer. Austin yeah. in the hospital, um, DX, DX's bus being blown up. Um, you know, you just it's the, big, for, it's for, the big, the big set pieces. Yeah, for years you didn't really have them, and the ones that were done were done were a bit lame mm. compared to the actual era ones. They've managed with Braun because of the specimen he is and the way they've carefully like done it. To bring back the anarchy of like an attitude era um, raw segment, but do it in a PG way, mm. and I think that's why fans connect with him so much because he's a throwback, but he's a modern monster. Yeah, if Braun that makes Strum, any sense. Yeah, Braun Strowman would have been wrestling Hulk Hogan for months on end if he had turned up in the eighties. He would have been put against Diesel in the 90s. He would have been put against The Undertaker in the 90s. He Mm. would have been in the Attitude Era in the main event along with Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Big Show in the 90s. But the problem... But then that's what's so interesting when you compare him to The Big Show. I've contended this, that if we look at Braun Strowman, really he was mostly protected during his year or so with the Wyatt family... He was never placed into a situation where he had to carry the load. He was almost the, the last barrier to the pe- to the people who were feuding with the Wyatt family. And he was never, to the best of my knowledge, he was never pinned until Roman Reigns pinned him, I think, at the event before last year's WrestleMania. Fast lane. I might be misremembering that, but I believe that's what it was. And so between that the Wyatt family then him being put on Raw and, and them shaving his head so that he didn't ha- he kept the beard but he didn't have that Wyatt family scraggly look anymore uh, placing him up against those jobbers gradually introducing him into the main storylines placing him against Roman Reigns and actually staying with him as a project even after he'd been defeated by Roman Reigns, which is something, like I said, they didn't bother doing with Rusev. They didn't really bother doing with Great Carly. They didn't bother doing with Ryback after they were done with John Cena. So, it's... Compare that to The Big Show. Within six weeks, I believe, of him debuting 
Less in such a spectacular fashion for a monster. He lost one-on-one in the ring to Stone Cold Steve Austin on an episode of Monday Night Raw. Yeah. So they really... The Big Show has been a victim of a very... I guess he was a victim of that Russo crazy short-term outlook booking. And also being surrounded by plenty of other monsters, I suppose, that he didn't necessarily look that unique he was only a few inches taller than the undertaker and kane and viscera and all these other guys so that his size wasn't even unless they presented him as such and so the presentation of the big show on tv has always been very stop start i remember after wrestlemania 2000 he really did get well i mean he got sent to ovw to lose weight and then after he didn't do that, by the time that the WCW invasion happens, he's there in the mid-card tag-teaming with um, Albert and Billy Gunn and Tajiri and Spike Dudley and Jeff Hardy until very suddenly, almost as suddenly, being put in and had him be the one to beat Brock Lesnar for the championship, which I remember at the time being so out of nowhere. And I guess they just always trusted he's big, therefore we don't need to worry about it. We don't need to worry about protecting him so much. We can have him be faced for this storyline. We can have him be healed for this storyline to the point that he was. We could do not just a whole podcast. We could do a series about the many turns of the big show. I think mm. totaled it at one point, and it's more than 20 times he's either flip-flop between babyface or heel. It's over 30. Time. I'm and, confident it's over and he's 30. lost so many times in the ring to pretty much everyone. But then they can still they still try to present him as the monster, and sometimes it works. Like in the 2004 Royal Rumble, they did great work with him at the in the finishing stretch with Benoit and Angle and Jericho and Rob Van Dam and John Cena all working to try and eliminate him, and how difficult it was. But that's the thing, though. He's a monster, and he's a giant, and he's apparently the hardest guy to eliminate at a Royal Rumble, but at this point, he's probably been in about 15 of them. And he's he never won, won it. won Yeah. So how good can you be, really? Jesus, uh, he... man. One time, you and Mark Henry got eliminated by R-Truth at the same time. Jeez. There's another example, of course, Mark Henry, for so long presented as sexual chocolates, as a mid-card guy at best, like the best run he had until... The, the, the Hall of Pain was him working in ECW with um not Tony Atlas was it? Is it Tony Atlas? Yeah it was Tony Atlas. Yeah it was Tony Atlas. That was it's... as good as his run got really after sexual chocolate but then just all of a sudden they said it was like a sleeping giant had been woken up and that Hall of Pain run was absolutely uh, fantastic. It was basically that run in and of itself is probably what will earn him a Hall of Fame induction in a couple of years' time when he finally retires. So to circle back to our earlier point, more than just the aura of invulnerability, is momentum the most important factor for a monster? Well, momentum comes with presentation. And the only way you can keep momentum going is if the people in charge want to make a big deal about you. And again, Mark Henry, they wanted to make a big deal about him for a while, and then they did. But then just as quickly as he loses the belt to Daniel Bryan, and then he never really recovers. He had a good little mini run with CM Punk, I remember, around that time. But almost as soon after that, he's the guy that is now losing to the other wrestlers to show, look, we've been able to beat Mark Henry. Brock Lesnar's been able to manhandle him. Sheamus has been able to beat him. 
all these other guys have been able to beat him. And then if you beat him too many times, beating him doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. So almost as quickly as he gained the aura, he mostly lost it. I think it's the same the case that just someone of that size can always realistically win a match. Yes. But the but no one has been presented as consistently as a monster since the big show uh, since Braun Strowman for a very long time. Maybe like early Kane, like very early Kane. Yes, yes, Kane is probably but again Kane has also been a victim of oh god some of the most outlandish. Yes. And I think it's uh, one thing I remember was that Kane was squashed by the great Carly because they needed to get the great Carly over. And then maybe 18 months, two years later, Kane essentially squashed the great Carly. Or Gene Snitsky manhandled Kane in one match, I remember. Yeah. Uh, I think it was one of the Taboo Tuesday matches or something like that. Just absolutely destroyed him. So I guess that Land of the Giants mini division can be a fun thing to do. And it was what The Undertaker was basically stuck in for the best part of three or four years. That he was in this own mini world that was... In a way, it's like how I say it's fun now with the Mixed Match Challenge. Because you're seeing male and female uh, characters that don't interact with each other. Because they're always in different segments. And it's quite fun to just see them there. Yeah. To see Alexa Bliss on screen with Braun Strowman is a unique situation and for that three or four years where the undertaker was usually wrestling the monster of the week the rare times he would interact with bret hart or Shawn michaels or lex luger or get involved in yoko zuna's uh title run then then it was it was it was a rarity and it was quite fun and i'm curious if that's where they could go with braun Strowman instead of putting the belt on him which it looks like they might want to do whether that be the world belt or the intercontinental belt, as rumours are currently circulating about his WrestleMania run. We might save that for a future episode about the intercontinental championship itself. Mm. There's 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 a, a group of wrestlers coming up now. You've got, as alluded to earlier, that the authors of Pain. Um, you have Lars Sullivan. You, heavy machinery. Heavy machinery. You have all of... There's a fair number of people out there on the independent circuit now. You've got Keith Lee, who's the current WWN champion. He's like 350 pounds and he's doing moonsaults and all sorts of other things. Donovan Dijak, who's in the uh, development system at the moment. So they could feed Braun Strowman these other monster characters for the best part of a year or two. I'm I'm... I'm fascinated by the potential of a Braun Strowman-Lars Sullivan feud in particular. I think that could be something that Vince McMahon would very much enjoy presenting. It's just a case of whether they can follow through. Because what I like with the idea with Lars Sullivan is that he can talk. So what I would like them personally to present Lars Sullivan as is like an intelligent monster. Because like I was saying, there's a certain requirement for a monster character for them to be the savage almost yeah. can't almost don't talk but instead to have Lars Sullivan not only talk but talk very intelligently and calmly and maybe a great gay. <laughs> example of the savage character um the, the savage monster is Umaga mm. uh they gave him even though he was a perfectly like a uh, fine english speaker and in fact had spoken english in his previous incarnations in the same company mm. never know, you know there was always that little 
okay, we're suspending disbelief a little too much here. Um, but they gave him the mouthpiece. Um, they they just let his savagery just speak for him in a sense. But then and they also had him have a handler for a while. In yeah, the, um, can't remember the guy's name now. But the... uh, Alamando Alejandro Estrada or something okay. like that. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, was, I wasn't sure I'd get him mixed. It was also his mouthpiece. Did the cigars and like the uh, funny yeah. laugh basically. Yeah. But he got shafted when Vincent Mann got involved in that with the uh, Battle of the Billionaires. The billionaires. Oh, he yeah. got binned off pretty much straight away. Yeah. But that's the point with savagery. Savagery gives bookers an out with monsters because their savagery could like be the tool of their own downfall. They become so aggressive that they make a mistake, and that's how mm. the plucky baby face beats them. Mm. Um, you know, that's just the thing because you build up someone so big, so dominant. You've got to give them character flaws. And more often than not, the easy out has been, let's make the big guy a bit dumb. Mm. What's interesting now with a lot of these super heavyweights slash monster wrestlers, um, if you look at the most recent, one of the most recent show matches that Dave Meltzer gave five stars to was a match between Donovan Dijak and uh, Keith Lee for PWG. And... What was the spectacle of that match? What was the story of that match? Was that there were these, like Donovan Dijak's about six foot seven, I think. He's lean, but he's big. So yeah, he's got height. And Keith Lee is about six foot three, but he's like three hundred fifty pounds, big, like American football player, linebacker, linebacker build. size. But he's also doing moon salts and and things like that, like Apollo Cruz. Yes. in a way, same similar sort of build. But no, 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 no. He's got a big old gut. As oh, athlete. right, okay. And right. that's what makes it even more spectacular that he's that great an athlete whilst looking not a million miles away from some of the people in the PWG crowd, at least as far as um, uh, an immediate underwear shot goes. <laughs> but. Relatability sells tickets. Yes. But what was the, the the key to that match was that they were doing things against what you would expect people of their size to do they were doing top rope moves they were doing dives they were doing they were doing power moves so it's un- the thing with that is that it's almost undercutting what the monster's supposed to do which is to basically stand still and not need to do these large moves the idea like when you put someone when you put a monster against Rey Mysterio the idea is that Rey Mysterio has to fly through the air and do all sorts of crazy things to make one knock against the opponent whereas that guy just has to slap him once like great carly just has to give one head chopping you down on the mats so i think it might be a part of the super indie culture of wrestling now that a lot of these guys come in and they want to show off which maybe monster wrestlers shouldn't do i remember matt morgan in one interview saying that he was told off by the dudley boys for bumping around which is weird you'd think they want they you know the key is to self to make your other guy look good but Bubba Ray says, you you know, your job is to look good, not to make other people look good. Yeah. It's like it, how the, the the Big Show got to win the world title in, like, his second match. He didn't have to yeah. pay his dues except for with his unfortunate genetics. Or and unfortunate to, um, genetics. to, to um, well, I want to expand on your point, but first I want to, like, piggyback straight off that Big Show thing. On one of the times he was on Talk is Jericho, no one had ever, like, taught him, like, the basics, the fundamentals. Um he actually had to learn to lock up from Raven. And Raven was like, well, you're a big guy. You shouldn't be locking up anyway. Um, but he taught him anyway. Mm. And um, when he was wrestling Hulk in his early like days in WCW, um, Hulk took him to the corner at one point And he's like, um, 
okay, now now hit me with one of your corner moves. He's like, I don't have a corner move. <laughs> so Hulk had to basically like sort of like pretend he was fighting his hand to mm. like get it round his own neck. Mm. Go, oh no, don't choke me, brother. So that Big Show could then pick it up. Mm. Um, yeah, monsters typically don't. This, again, to go back to one of my earlier points, monsters don't need to know how to wrestle. That that's why they're mon- that's why it's so like like brutal and raw is because they're just hitting people, and that's they have the the brute strength, the brute force to do that. Whereas people have to wrestle to beat them. And- well, I think you've just got to look at the gradual evolving of the Undertaker as an in ring performer. When he debuts, all he basically does is chokes, but literally just grabs them by the throat and throttles them. That was pretty much all he did for the whole match, and then he'd do the tombstone at the end. Then when he turned babyface, he suddenly had to sell a bit more. So then you got a bit more of the clotheslines and everything. And the Undertaker selling was a weird thing for him to do. He had to sell while still looking invincible. And that was that he was temporarily stopped, that he was knocked down, but then he would just as soon sit back up. And then as he gradually got more and more humanised as we went into the mid-90s and the late-90s, then, especially by the time he's wrestling Shawn Michaels, he's doing dives, he's doing big power moves, he's doing he's brawling with the Shawn Michaels, to the point then when he becomes the American badass, and in theory, all the monstrosity insofar as him not feeling pain has gone, and he's just a really tough biker dude who can sell and will get injured and, and so on, before they then bring him all the way... Or they don't bring him entirely back to square one, but he goes back to the selling of being... Well, to be fair, he always sold like he like that from then on for the most part. He just would do the zombie sit-up and, and everything like that. So it's that, it's that interesting thing that he didn't have to work for basically the first three or four years, and, and so as a result, a lot of people thought that he couldn't wrestle and he was having really bad matches. So that's what made... 1997 in particular, like this Annus Mirabilis for him to drop a bit of Latin on you, which I'm pretty sure I mispronounced just then. <laughs> Where he's having a five-star match with Shawn Michaels, and it's not just because Shawn Michaels is bumping off of him. He is doing everything that is required of him. And and then he's still having these amazing matches like later on into his career. So... Did The Undertaker remain a monster? At any point in that time, would you say The Undertaker was no longer a monster wrestler? The American badass potentially like goes more into the realm of a machine wrestler or a man-on-the-mission wrestler more than... I like, more of a brawler wrestler. Yeah. But, well, well, a man-on-the-mission, a man a out, out to prove a point kind of thing. Mm. But he was very close to it. Um, to sort of expand on your undertaker point just there obviously for the first three or four years he had fought his people like the giant gonzalez like um king mabel um and people like that but then obviously he fights admittedly um better wrestlers but smaller wrestlers in your bret hart's your Shawn michaels your stone cold steve austin's do you think one of the most important parts of a monster's presentation and therefore a monster's legacy are the people he faces um in the modern era yes when you're being remembered more for the matches rather than you as a personality traveling around the place to the best of my knowledge no one has any great classic opponents for like haystacks calhoun 
or any of the original monster wrestlers. I guess when you get to Abdullah the Butcher, then you start talking about the Sheik and Bruiser Brody and guys like that. And when you talk about Andre the Giant, you talk about Killer Khan and Kamala and Big John Studd. And in Japan, you talk about Antonio Inoki and and so on. But um, I think that they need, obviously, for them to be a monster, they need their opponent to sell their monstrousness. And that's what that, that was the thing about Taz as well. To go back to Taz, the reason that he could be presented as a monster was that the other wrestlers in the promotion basically feared him. And but then when they put him in the WWF, where no one does fear him, it sort of looks kind of silly that he's acting all posturing like he's a big tough guy. Yeah. So it's it, always it's always that illusion, isn't it? It's like when Mick Foley says when he took off the Mankind mask and tore off the Mankind shirt to reveal Cactus Jack's shirt underneath. If Triple H hadn't sold that, like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> I've he, messed up. He royally. could have just set, sold it as. Oh, this is the guy I just beat up earlier, and he's just taken his mask off and torn his shirt off. Mm. So you need there needs to be that selling of the monster within. Again, there we go. Well, Mankind, another great monster wrestler in his original incarnation, and then he got humanized. Uh, but then the monster became Cactus Jack character. That yeah. was it, like like it was so curious the way that he wrestled as Mankind in like ninety nine was that he would take a shit kicking and keep coming back. Whereas then when he becomes Cactus Jack in 2000, the story is more he dishes out the shit kicking. And, and you've got Triple to survive H has, And his Triple H has to survive him instead of it being the other way around. It's it's like, to go back to a, lot, a little bit, you're right, in terms of Triple H selling the whole Cactus Jack, um, re, well, regeneration, to paraphrase Doctor Who, um, it's down to how, like your villains or your heroes are reacted to if in star wars uh the first time that helmet goes on and you hear that ominous breathing from darth vader everyone goes oh i see you on that life support machine uh obi-wan really did a number on you wouldn't have worked <laughs> just yeah just... i was discussing that with some um friends recently where we were talking about how darth vader did he lose his aura because of the prequels and now some people will say with Rogue One, yeah, he didn't. But I guess more actually when we were talking about a, a Peter Serafinowicz sketch that has Darth Vader fall in love with Lady Darth Vader who had pink and everything. And I said, and he said, I didn't think that sketch worked as much. And I think the reason that you think that is because we knew we know too much about Darth Vader, what he was, who he was, why he has that costume. Yeah. That the idea of there being a Lady Darth Vader doesn't really work as much because you have too much knowledge of Darth Vader. And that joke requires you to forget a lot of what you know about Darth Vader. Do you get right. where I'm coming from? Yeah, uh, yeah. You've sort of got to forget who who he was before. And now yeah, we, and... we've we've pe- we've peeked behind the curtain. Darth Vader's kayfabe sort of went yeah. with the prequels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got jobbed out yeah. <laughs> by that. No. <laughs> okay, so here's my last note that I have for you before we go towards Rush- Mount Rushmore. I don't know if you've got more to, to ask me, but are there? Can you work? as a babyface monster? Or does a monster inherently mostly need to be a heel? And if you can work as a babyface monster, what would be your, uh, an example that you would give? To go back to 
I'm going back a lot in this, but to go back to the point earlier, it's all about who you oppose. A monster is only as good as his opponents. If his opponents are good enough heels, yeah, you can have a babyface monster. Um, Ron Strowman, uh, for example, I would argue is a babyface monster at the moment. Uh, well, he's sort of between it, but then we're going down a dark path of what's babyface and what's heel these days. Broadly, you see... I. I the way he hits, um, for example, uh, uh, the other week he hit Elias with an extra finisher at the behest of the crowd, mm. something a babyface does. Heels don't pander to crowds, mm. stereotypically. Um, and if you look at Kane, I guess, when Kane first uh, turned up, Kane had like a reason to be a babyface in terms of like, you know, he'd, he'd been set on fire by his brother. Uh, at least in like storyline terms, you've got, you know, there's all sorts in terms of like baby, the monsters being baby faces. The Undertaker, um, in some various of his things, he had to fight for his very existence mm. against like Triple H at WrestleMania. Um, he had to. Um, he, he was the one t- telling Shawn Michaels he didn't want to fight him again at WrestleMania at times. He was like, look, I'm, you know, bait. I don't know if he's a monster at that point or if he's just a symbol of, he's a totem. He's the Grim Reaper incarnate almost in that point. And he's just, it's the aura of him as a figurehead within the world of wrestling rather than him as like some invulnerable monster carving, a, you know, um, Carving a a, a, a a swathe through the roster. He's, well, he's separate of that roster. I mean, for example, like Babyface Monsters, you give The Undertaker. Now, until he got put into the title picture in 96, 97, he was very much a, a monster amongst monsters. So it then becomes like Godzilla fighting Mothra. Yeah. Um, so he's still a monster, but he's our monster. Or it's Frankenstein's monster facing Dracula in a, in a Hammer Horror film. Or Kane, but this is the thing, when when these guys turn babyface, when Kane turned babyface, they almost always needed to weaken him, whether it be through the Katie Vick storyline, or through the the, the Tory uh, cheating on him with X-Pac storyline, or you make him a more comedic character like they did with the Daniel Bryan Team Hell No situation. Or um, or or actually, when he when he first came back and did the hurricane before the Katie Vick angle uh, was brought in, so then that some of that monstrousness has to go. So if we go by a monster, someone that's huge and invulnerable, could you argue that Hulk Hogan was a monster wrestler? Now he was definitely a monster wrestler when he was facing Bob Backlund in the early eighties as a heel, or when he was facing Antonio Inoki in Japan in the early eighties. But was Hulkamania Hulk Hogan a monster babyface? He ticks a lot of the boxes. Uh, Aura of invincibility, height, weight, width, strength. But ah, it's tough because if you look at the way Hulk Hogan actually wrestles, even as a babyface, it's a very heelish. Um Maybe, but okay, maybe okay, here's my other one for you. But sorry, sorry, just to um, pinch that off. But I think <laughs> terrible, terrible wordage there. Um, Hulk Hogan, 
to piggyback off your Undertaker point, was more the figurehead, the conduit of Hulkamania itself, and therefore you get away with it a little bit. Mm. But your argument has a lot of credence to it. How about this one? Big Daddy. Now, he was presented as invulnerable in that he sold nothing from anyone except maybe giant haystacks. Oh, that's a tough one because, again, ticks a lot of the boxes, but um, I think it's the same thing as Hulk. I think he's just a conduit of, like, the hope that fans, like, represent. They they want that hero that triumphs over all, ultimately. Okay, well, that has been our main discussion of Mount, of uh, Monster Wrestlers. And now we go to the final part of this discussion. Who would we choose as our Mount Rushmore Monster Wrestlers? This has been a tough one for me. I don't know if it's been a tough one for you, Simon. Hardest one yet. <laughs> Let's see. Who would be your four picks as the ultimate Monster Wrestlers? Okay, um... Do I do my honourable mentions first or last? Uh, maybe wait until I've given mine so okay. that we can see if what's been missed. Right, so um, number one is Andre the Giant. Quite simply, I, I, don't, I almost don't have to present a case here. I mean, people know who Andre the Giant is who don't know who, what wrestling is. And Can it's I be, be honest with you? When I was doing my list, I was wondering whether I should include Andre because of how little of his career, especially in the States, was he presented as a monster, as a monster villain. That he was basically Andre the Friendly Giant through most of his time in the WWF. But his time as a villain, iconic. And it's Which the catalyst. He was only three years, really, in the WWF. In his... 20 plus year career mm-hmm. in America that, as far as American fans were concerned he only spent a small portion of that as a heel yeah but the time he did spend as a heel and that feud with Hulk Hogan the irresistible force versus the immovable object and the way that was like presented and the way it sort of like built up a groundswell perfectly it, it sort of is the stereotypical hero defeats monster uh, feud it, it's it's textbook it's iconic it's it is wrestling it is one of those moments that encapsulate it if wrestling was put into it was a time capsule that would be in it quite simply okay you can't ignore it so andre bruiser brody next mm-hmm. pick um i had to like look at his weight because i'm like he didn't look a heavy man um he had like not he had a bit he was big but he didn't look like musk like he didn't look like shredded muscular he just looked like wild muscular well his whole thing is the wild man man yelling huss all the time in the big furry boots and the chain exactly and that's the thing he was that's a savage monster that's the best savage monster that's ever been because although he was also presented as like the intelligent monster which is again what i hope they do with lars sullivan but he had that sort of wild-eyed intensity which has never really been replicated to that level. No one's ever really, like, scared a crowd. Had, like, you know, terrified other wrestlers. Just had that just, I, I can do whatever I want to you, and no one in the world can stop me. Which was vibe. basically his attitude backstage as well, from everything we've heard. <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe he lived his gimmick. Maybe his gimmick was him. <laughs> we could really never separate the two. Mm-hmm. But 
just terrifies people mm-hmm. <laughs> in a in like in a, just such a compelling thrilling way of like this this man is a hurricane this is a tornado about to hit that town and i'm not looking away basically mm-hmm. um third pick big van vader um you look at what he did for sting's career it's a perfect example of a dude who doesn't isn't tall but is heavy and can move in such a way where it accentuates his monsterness, especially for the time period he was in. If Vader was around now, maybe he wouldn't have stood out. He would stand out in like reckoning so much, and maybe he wouldn't even make the top four. Who knows? But you've he got was... to look. Sorry, you've got to look at what they did when they did. And he sort of reinvented monstrousness in a sense. Yeah, he made a monster more of a wrestler and an athlete and that he would be having very often the best match on the card. And I think whenever people still to this day talk about the perfect David and Goliath match, they will more often than not point to Vader against Sting. And like you say, I think Sting might have been a couple of inches taller than Vader. Yeah, but height meant nothing. But yeah, these matches with Inoki yeah. in Japan and Choshu and Fujinami and Misawa and Kabashi and Shawn Michaels and um, Sting, Mick Cactus Jack. Um, there's one I'm just missing out that I'm really kicking myself for not being able to remember. Um, but you've listed there a wide array of body type shapes. Um you know, just athletic styles of, of human. He was the proto-Brock Lesnar. All of them have a clear advantage in some way over Vader, whether it be perceived technical ability, speed, height. None of it mattered because Vader was such a good all-rounder and he had and he such that. Them. <laughs> and he, he would just come at you. He, he was like a dark mist descending upon your like mm-hmm. town. Or oh, your ship Flair. out at sea. That was one I forgot, Ric Flair. I mean, many points that Starcade 93 matches may be Ric Flair's best match as a babyface. See, I mean, getting Ric as a babyface and like the fact his best match as a babyface was against someone like Vader, a monster like Vader, just shows mm. what Vader, Vader could do to someone who is a perennial heel. Mm. Um, fourth pick, we've talked about him a lot, and the reason is he's iconic. He's again. He's another person. When people who don't know wrestling will say this name, the Undertaker, um, a monster slayer, uh, the monster to beat, uh, the man who, through his um, the added string to his bow of his gimmick, had his monsters her monsterness accentuated. Um, through like you know special effects sitting up coming back from the dead uh, and what have you and a man has managed to reinvent himself um, at a time where his it's really sad with The Undertaker because you think if he was Benjamin Button he'd possibly be the best wrestler on the planet because Mm. as wrestling's got faster his his health is is failing him and uh, 91 Undertaker in today's climate, I just want to see what moves he could even do. Mm. Um, to be honest, 91 Undertaker, if he was that age and that height, given how obsessed he is, I think he would have tried to make it an MMA instead of going into wrestling. Which may be why we're not getting as many big people involved in wrestling anymore. That they have other avenues other than wrestling for them to look at. I think 
one of the topics we'll have to devote a lot more time to it is uh, MMA's influence on wrestling. That that's a whole that's yeah. a massive. I mean, we had that with the submission episode, but yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I want to get like an MMA expert in to talk about that as well. So all some very dude who good... just looks like he could beat us up at any yeah. moment. All very good choices, to be honest with you, Simon. Um, if you just want to go through those four again. All right. So your snap recap is Bruiser Brody, Andre the Giant, Big Van Vader. And The Undertaker. There's a decent chance at any point I would have said those four. My long list is a long list. Appropriate for such large people. <laughs> um, and so I'm actually going to, you know, I, there, there are at least, put it this way, there are at least three people in that list that I think I might choose as my ultimate one for both of us to go for. But it's also a case of which ones do I leave out. And I just want to make a couple of honourable mentions. To I want to make an honourable mention to Mark Henry. Um, because he did do such a great uh, job, but just for too brief a period in his run as a wrestler, if if Hall of Pain Mark Henry had been around for six, seven, eight years as opposed to two or three years, then I think you could make a case for him. And if he had more moments like his retirement speech with Cena, mm-hmm. and less moments like he giving his son being a hand, yeah, uh, Kamala, I want to give another shout out to an honourable mention to as well. Uh, I was and Kane. I will give a shout out to, but we have too much love for Kane on this podcast already, so I'm going to refrain from including him in my list. And uh, last shout out, I came really close to picking the giant haystacks in this one because he's the great British monster heel. When people talk about British wrestling, they talk about Big Daddy against giant haystacks. That is what they talk about. And he was so big that they were able to even put him in WCW against the the Big Show as it as it went on. And the Big Show is going to be one of my picks, even though he, like I said, he's been booked poorly. When he's been allowed to be the monster, especially during his first run as the Giant, and then during various points in the Royal Rumbles, and when required, he's very quickly been able to make you forget enough about his past misdeeds in the ring. Or on storylines for you to forgive him. And I think he kept it going. And and has been willing to put over people like Braun Strowman. To make them look good. And whenever whenever he's on screen. He still makes a... Uh, he's a man that's never been booked well as a monster. But has still managed to be a long time key component of wrestling's um, uh, landscape. For over 20 years. And as a man who won a title in his second match, he could very easily have rested on his laurels. A man who's broken through the glass ceiling of the booking of himself, basically. In in many ways, yeah. So I guess I'm giving him the spot because I think he deserves it for all the shit he's had to be put up with. (laughs) Because I didn't go for Giant Haystacks, I ultimately went for the man that his name was inspired by, and that was Haystacks Calhoun. One of the first... Basically, the, the, the lead into the Andre the Giant, the big star attraction that people just go to see him there this six foot eleven guy in dungarees and okay like this carnival <clears throat> yeah yeah basically going back to the carny days of wrestling that's what he embodied and to those that saw him at the time and if you just look up some pictures of him his size is staggering um i've gone for abdullah the butcher as the classic monster as an Someone that doesn't speak and he managed to go literal decades in this industry 
as a fixture in Japan and Puerto Rico and, and everywhere else. Except for really the WWE, but he did get to go into the Hall of Fame. A man whose whose head is so disfigured from so many um, bladings that he's literally able to rest poker chips inside his head, as Mick Foley recounted in the past. And my final pick, I could basically go with... I don't want to go with The Undertaker. Because I don't, I think he's there's too much, there's too much, too many variants and too many nuances to his character for you to not consider him a big, uh, uh, for him to not just be a monster wrestler. Okay. Whereas the other three that you've gone with, Andre, Bruiser Brody, and Vader, I think can be defined as monster wrestlers. Okay. Whilst I deliberate over them, are there any other honourable mentions that neither of us have mentioned yet that you would want to just say here? Um, yes, I have two you've not reeled off so far. I do have the foil to Giant Haystacks. I did put Big Daddy down as a monster. But sort of, again, we touched on it earlier, the friendly monster. Uh, he won, but you know, he had the crowd behind him. It was sort of, again, that conduit. So he got the people behind him in a way but it was more of a mania than a monster mm. a la hawkermania so to speak i mean, it really dates it really like shows the comparison between american showmanship and british showmanship when you look at how big daddies was marketed compared to how hulk hogan was marketed um my other honorable mention it's young it's early it, it's a bold shell but i'm going to stick to my guns Braun Strowman. I think the components are there to once again reinvent what the monster is. I, mm. I think he's going to add depth to... You think, you think five years down the line, Braun Strowman will probably be in this list, barring any unfortunate... Injuries, yeah, yeah. career decisions, anything like that. Yeah, I'm going to nail my colours to the mast on this one. Okay. And I guess I've got to nail colours... I am going to go with Bruiser Brody. Okay. I think he was monstrous insofar as that he was seemingly invulnerable for the most part in Japan elsewhere, partly because he would refuse to lose to anyone, pretty much. <laughs> uh, he, he had those furry boots, the Huss character. He was big, but he could move. He could brawl, but he could be powerful. He was a star wherever he went, and a Bruiser Brody run in the WWF could have been fascinating. If just to hear stories of him dealing with Vince McMahon. Oh, God, there's a clash. Been something within themselves. And him, uh, Vince, and Hulk Hogan's politicking. Uh, that a man that backstage was known as a very intelligent well-spoken man. I think he started off as a journalist before he got into wrestling or something crazy like that. And so I'm going to go with that. Bros- Bruiser Brody as the ultimate monster wrestler. I, I'm, 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 I'm happy with that. Um, a, because I picked it first. Mm. And, and B, because I think ultimately he, he, he blends it all. I mean, I mentioned... The other three I mentioned, Andre the Giant, mm. um, Undertaker, and Vader. I think most people think it Vader. should be Andre. But I think, like I said, I think for too long in his career he was the friendly giant's. Yeah, um, that's but, not to say that like he he would have been in my list if you hadn't included him in yours. Yeah, 
Like, if I had to do just four, my four would probably have had Andre, Bruiser, Brody, and Vader, and then one of one of the ones I mentioned. Probably Abdullah or Haystacks Calhoun. I would have probably gone with. Yeah, but you look at as- aspects of all the guys you and I picked. Well, definitely all the guys I picked. Um, Andre, yeah. massive attraction. <laughs> Undertaker had, like, this invincibility to him this this aura and, and like this wild like just power to him vader didn't look like your conventional monster wasn't a seven foot tall man but still thick enough wide enough and just vicious enough in just terms of the way he moved around the ring but athletic enough that he would change the the how those sort of matches worked exactly bruiser brody was all of those things mm-hmm all right well that has been a monstrously long conversation about the monsters of wrestling simon if people want to get in touch with you to discuss things further how can they do so uh well they can um yell abuse at me in the street they they can uh hit us up on facebook or they could follow me on twitter where i'm known as simon cross free um so known because i actually shun the uh pro fruits lobby um, you know, pushing their five a day down your necks. So I think freeze plenty. Freeze fine. It was ten, wasn't it, recently that they were saying? It's like five fruit and five veg. Apparently, I don't like... I ever manage that. <laughs> I'd hate to think what um, the output would look like, to, yeah. to leave it politely. Yeah, that's twice you've made references to that uh, <laughs> daily activity. Um, without naming Daily? Names. <laughs> I'd eat more fibre if that's the case, Lorcan. Yeah. Um, but that's how people can get hold of myself. How about you, Lorcan? Well, they can get in touch with me on Twitter at Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple N for Norman. They can follow me on Facebook or they can add me on Facebook as a friend. They can go on to Amazon and get themselves a copy of my ebook, Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. Or very hopefully in the near future, the announcement will be made as it's got as it's finally uh, put forward. But I am working on a second podcast without you. I'm afraid to say, Simon, not please about please. not about the world of wrestling, though there might be episodes related to wrestlers or wrestling in the future uh, called "Best of Worst of British," where myself and two comedian friends, Michael Bell and Tom Hodgkinson. Watch notoriously bad and maybe not yet notorious enough bad British films. The first two that we worked on were Guy Ritchie's Revolver and the classic big screen version of the classic British sitcom On the Buses. (laughs) Um, There will be more and more of those. Those episodes will be coming out weekly, probably sometime around spring. I... I don't know if I'm misremembering this or this is just like my brain compounding nightmares of how naff uh, cinema can be, but was there only the one on the buses film? There were three, Simon. It was a trilogy. Okay, okay. Every bit as epic as Back to the Future, insofar as it had morals from the 19th century. <laughs> it's it's very much uh, British cinema's equivalent of the Godfather trilogy. I've, I've been led to believe by absolutely no one. Yes, and with the forthcoming film, I believe it's called Walk Like a Panther, which is about basically the full Monty with British wrestling, 
starring the likes of Stephen Grant and Dave Johns from I, Daniel Blake. Whether it's good or not is yet to be decided, and it might very well be a future episode. Here we go. Walk Like a Panther revolves around a group of 80s wrestlers who are forced to don the lycra one last time when their beloved local pub is threatened by closure. Oh, dear. Fingers crossed, guys. Fingers crossed. You are a bit of a masochist, aren't you? You've no idea, man. I just had to watch that Princess Diana film with Naomi Watts. Good gravy, that's bad. Actually, I'll just see if I can find very quickly... We have a WhatsApp group between the three of us. It's basically a support group. Um, <laughs> I can't bring myself to watch. I've tried twice now. And this is from the guy that's got to take notes of what happens in this film. <laughs> so, uh, another one. Oh, this is sickening. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> Eight minutes in, and I'm already willing on the car crash. So... <laughs> So look forward to that episode oh, when that drops. Right. Uh, well, well I don't think we can top that. So. Yeah, that was quite a monstrous statement for him to say. So that has been Let Me Tell You Something. Thank you for letting us tell you something. I'm behalf of myself, Lorcan Mullen. And myself, Simon Cross. Have a great time. Until the next time. Farewell, Grapplers. Keep a level head, okay? Because I'll tell you a secret about Frankenstein. He's actually Frankenstein's monster.